dangerous prayers. We don't normally associate the word dangerous with praying, do we? Now, some of you I know, because you've told me stuff dangerous you did in your younger years, and it's a miracle you're here. But, so we're not talking about that, putting your life at risk, so to speak, but dangerous prayers. Can prayer be dangerous? I'm just reading a little part here to kind of introduce this. Can prayer be dangerous? Is prayer supposed to be dangerous? Any encounter with a holy God can be dangerous, not in a life-threatening way, but in a way that can be life-altering and soul-shaping. That's why it's perhaps, again, using this word dangerous, because if you are sincere and really seeking after God, hold on, he's going to meet you at that place. Amen? All too often, we pray safe prayers, don't we? Lord, give me that parking space near the door at Walmart or Publix. Um, Give me that, uh, you know, this, that, or lay me down to sleep, or Lord bless our... You know, we, we have all sorts of safe prayers, but these are prayers that not only challenge God, if we could say that, but challenge us. And so all too often when we pray safe prayers... God bless me, God help me, God protect me, God heal me, God provide for me. And there's nothing wrong with that. Those are all Bible prayers. But dangerous prayers are risky and life-stretching. Dangerous prayers, listen to this, and we'll see this in a dangerous prayers of brokenness. Dangerous prayers are filled with boldness and daring faith. My most dangerous prayers have come in moments of deep frustration and seasons of brokenness. Can anybody relate? And the author uh, that's writing this says, I pray more dangerously. Listen to this. I pray more dangerously when I need to experience God's light in my soul, His power in my ministry, and His leading, or in my life, and his leading for the future. I want that, right? I want more of that. And there's a little statement here from Max Lucado where he says, This, my God, is my prayer. Draw me from your fire. Form me on your anvil. Shape me with your hands. And let me be your tool. Let me be your instrument. That's a dangerous prayer because God will meet us and answer that prayer if we're sincere. Now, if we just want to kind of just keep things safe and just kind of have a la-di-da relationship with God and kind of keep religion at a distance, you know what? That's, 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 our, that's your choice. But some of us, I believe, really say, God, I want, I want you. I want more of you. God, I want to reach a place in you. God, where I will experience you in a deeper way, God, where I will experience you in a way that will challenge me, will challenge you. And that's what we're going to talk about with these dangerous prayers. Dangerous prayers are life-transforming prayers. We talk about transformation. They're, They're prayers that transform us, that bring transformation, not reformation, not just improving the old, 
not just putting a little polish on what we've been doing, but transforming into something new that God is shaping us and molding us. And so this morning, open your Bibles. Trust that you bring your Bibles. Start off the new year by bringing your Bibles. Come on, people. Get into shape. Bring your Bibles. This is a Bible church. And I know we got phones and electronics, and that's okay for quick reference, but nothing you will learn. You can't, you, if you're serious, and you know this is my soapbox because I just, I know it's true. I know I'm right. Can't help it. I know I'm right. You cannot grow if you're not engaged with a book that you see what's ahead, what's forward, what's around, and you understand the shape of Scripture. And when you come together, bring your Bibles. You say, well, I have trouble seeing print. Guess what? They got something called giant print now. It's a new technology. And again, that's where electronic devices are really handy because my iPad, I can make print really big and read faster, and I'm not, that's all good and okay. But bring whatever it is that's useful to you so you can engage in Scripture. We try to put some Scripture on the screen, but I intentionally don't put everything up there because I, because I don't want you to be lazy. I want you to engage with Scripture and, and be, be, be conversant. Know where books... And that's where having a... A Bible like Jesus carried with tabs in it is really handy. <laughs> no, he didn't do that. I'm just kidding. Um, because, again, you know where things are. You know when somebody says, turn here, whether you're conversant with it. Listen, I'm a pastor, and I've got degrees I'm still paying off. But, listen, I have, see these little tabs here? They're my little cheaters. I, I'm not that spiritual. And I, I know sometimes people are like, oh, I'm going to have to find the book of Micah. I'm going to have to look at the table of contents, and maybe nobody will see me. You know what? Don't be silly. Get to know your Bible, okay? And the one way to do that is be engaged with the Bible every day, and that's where that's a tool like this is just a tool. By the way, we've had these in the back for a while, and this is a, a yearly Bible reading guide. It's easy. You just stick in your Bible. If you want to read the Bible through a year, there's morning and evening. You'll uh, read through the Old Testament once in a year, the New Testament twice, and the book of Psalms twice. And uh, so, again, make use of it that fits you. But whatever it is, do something. Do something. And don't, don't feel like because you read a lot, you're, that means equals the spiritual growth. It's better to take the book of John and read that for the whole year and understand what you're reading than to just read mindlessly so you can check a little box on a little pamphlet. Okay? So be engaged and grow. All right, that's free. That doesn't count in my time. Let me take that out of my time here. All right, good. All right, let's read Genesis chapter 32, and I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. It should be on the screen. We're using the English Standard Version, the ESV. The same night, talking about Jacob here, he arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children, and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else that he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket. Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, Jacob said, let me go. Or the, the angel of the Lord said, let me go for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. There's that dangerous prayer. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. 
And the man said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, or Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose up on him as he passed Penuel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh, of an animal, obviously, that is on the hip socket, because he... The angel of the Lord touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Let's pray. Father, help us, Lord, this morning as we unpack your holy word. Thank you that when we read these words, we're hearing the voice of the Creator, the voice of God. These are your words. We thank you for the word of God that speaks to us today as living and as active. We thank you for the Holy Spirit God, that uh, empowers me to approach uh, even speaking on your behalf and opening this book. Let your spirit, God, lead us and be our God and teacher, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. What is a dangerous prayer? Well, here's one in this account of Jacob. Let me just remind you of a few things about Jacob, okay? Just kind of a way as a background because it'll, it'll round out things and give us a little context, all right, and make uh, what we're going to uh, explain and walk through uh, maybe more helpful. Jacob, remember, is the grandson of Abraham, Abraham and Sarah. His father was Isaac. His mother was Rebecca, all right? He uh, had an older brother. They were twins, and his older brother uh, was Esau, uh, Jacob was the father of 12 sons. He had daughters and, and more than that, but 12 sons that uh, became what became was the head of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. Those were the sons of Jacob that uh, their, their son, the, his sons became the head of the 12 tribes of Israel. His name is interesting because it tells us a little bit something tells us something about Jacob and his character. His name uh, means supplanter. Now you think, well, what is supplanter? Uh, also, in the, it means heel catcher. And you think, well, why a heel catcher? Because in Genesis 25, verse 26, when he was born, remember his, he, there were twins uh, at his birth, his older brother Esau, that at his birth, it says in Genesis 25, 26, Esau was born first. He was the firstborn. But Jacob's hand was holding on to Esau's heel. And that kind of speaks a little bit about Jacob later in life and his character because it seemed that Jacob's life was characterized as one always trying to reach out and take hold and manipulate and organize and do something to get a, get a step ahead, to try to get circumstances in life to bend his way, and so that name seemed to fit him. One of the probably more uh, infamous accounts of when he uh, did this was when he tricked his older brother Esau out of his, what, birthright. Now, Mama had a little hand in this whole scheme there, and you can read that at another time, but Esau was the firstborn, and being that as Isaac was dying, 
it was customary for the father to give the patriarchal blessing to the oldest son, and that would have been Esau, right? Well, Jacob and mama kind of sought to fix that. So Jacob, they would manipulate the circumstance, and I won't get into all the details, but he basically disguised himself. Isaac is old and dying, and his eyesight is dim, and so disguised himself in a way that when Isaac uh, reached out to bless him, it at least felt like uh, Esau. But, you know, and again, you can read all about how that worked out there. And so Isaac ended up giving uh, Jacob, not Esau, but Jacob through this manipulation and trickery, ended up receiving the firstborn blessing. And he had tricked Esau out of a birthright for a bowl of soup, and there's a whole schematic there of what's going on there. Kind of fits his, his name, doesn't it? Heel catcher. He's always trying to maneuver the situation, always trying to manage people and manage situations for his benefit. Can anybody relate to that? Huh? Or are we just so spiritual? We'll take our halos off, throw them on. Can anybody relate to that, right? We always want to kind of feel like we're in control. A few weeks back, I wasn't in control at all. And so Jacob is uh, kind of, we, we kind of connect a little bit, always trying to control his life, always trying to control his own destiny through his, uh, his own strength and wits, even if it meant stepping on a few toes in the process. You know what? That's the way it is. Jacob was... Uh, a manipulator, essentially. Is that fair to say? He was a a manipulator, trying to self-manage and strategize his wife. And so when we come to verse 22, uh, and this kind of sets us up here, remember what I said about Esau, how he conned or tricked Esau out of his birthright and then ended up, uh, before Esau showed up, uh, he received the patriarchal blessing from dad And obviously, when Esau came on the scene, too late, he didn't receive that that prayer blessing. And so, what do you think that did for future Christmas dinners? It wasn't any. I mean, it wasn't going to. So, Esau uh, was furious that he was tricked, that he was manipulated, that he was conned out of that blessing, out of that birthright. And so it created this separation and division. But guess what? We come to Genesis 32, and that, that's coming, as they say, the chickens are coming home to roost. You know that phrase? That means Esau now is coming after Jacob, and he's going to exact his revenge. And so when we come to verse 22, and I won't necessarily reread all this there, But I do have to say this in verse 22. I don't know if you can find that and go back there. I'm sorry you have to flip around if you can't. That's okay. But it says, the same night he arose, he took two wives. Oops. Two wives. My wife said I could never be a polygamist because I can barely handle one wife. So she never... She never was, that's never going to be an issue. But but listen, that's, you know, that's that... Polygamy was a certain reality in that culture and time. Abraham, David, they had many wives. Now, in fairness, some of these wives 
were for economic purposes. Sometimes the women became uh, a wife because either they were their husband, their brother, somebody, and so they became the wife, part of the household. There wasn't necessarily any intimacy, but they became a wife of the household for economic reasons. There wasn't Medicare and retirement and 401k, you know, so, so there was some of those. But in the case of many of them, like Solomon, uh, he, was just, he was just a sex addict. Let's be honest. I mean, that, that's just the reality. And one of the ways that he sought pleasure was in, was in multiple, many women. And that was where he, he lamented that, there, that all the things that he chafed, chased after uh, was empty. And so one of the things that you find, and this is kind of just a sidebar because it's, it's there, is you have to realize that when you read and study the Bible, that there are, the Bible is always descriptive. Descriptive means it just tells you what it is. If there was a murder, if there was a killing, if there was a, it's descriptive. This is what happened. But that doesn't mean it's prescriptive. Do you understand the difference? Just because it describes something, it's not saying, go and do likewise. Hello? So always recognize the Bible's descriptive, but it doesn't mean that it's prescriptive. It's not prescribing a principle for you to do this. God never condone multiple wives. God never condone uh, that type of relationship, regardless of who it was, all right? So I just kind of had to throw that in there because I know some of you would not want to miss that little tidbit there, all right? But in verse 24, here we go. What is happening? Uh, if you go back at the beginning of chapter 32, it says... Um, it speaks about how Jacob went on his way, and this is after an event, and I'll just, I won't even read that here, but essentially Esau is coming after Jacob. Now, Jacob tried to, you know, fend him off, but it wasn't working. Esau is coming, and now Jacob is in absolute total panic. His whole life now is coming down to this moment. His whole life, all his scheming, all his manipulation, all his way that he thinks he can outmaneuver everybody in the situation. Everything now is coming to a head, and guess what? He's all by himself. He tells everybody to get up and leave, and uh, it says in verse 24, don't worry about going back uh, to, the, to the verses, but it says that Jacob was left alone. He was left alone, and there was something that happened when he was left alone. The Bible says, and the ESV says, a man wrestled with him. A man wrestled with him. You think, where did this guy come out of? Was he hiding in the rocks? Was he a sneak uh, spy from Esau that's going to kind of, you know, prep him up before Esau got there? Who is this man? Well, the Bible is a great commentary. The best commentary on Scripture is Scripture. And again, it's, we'll turn to it, but you may want to make a little note there. Hosea 12.4 says that this man was an angel of the Lord. Now, that's a term that is often identified as being God, the angel of the Lord. This is God himself, or we would even say a pre-incarnate uh, Jesus Christ. You do know Jesus Christ existed before the manger. You do know that, don't you? All right, he was God of very God. And so we call this a theophany in theology. We call this a theophany 
when the angel of the Lord. So who is Jacob wrestling with? He's wrestling with the Lord. He's wrestling with God. And we would identify him as uh, the New Testament. We would see this as a pre-incarnate, incarnate pre-birth presence or reality, manifestation, person of Jesus Christ. In verse 30 of your Bibles, you'll see where Jacob confesses there after all this is over, where he says, I have seen God face to face. So Jacob recognizes, obviously, and identifies this as God. So here we have Jacob at this moment of frustration, and it's a breaking of Jacob's will. Jacob is, I mean, this guy is not only broken, but he's going to get broken some more after this encounter with the Lord. Jacob's will of self-reliance, self-management, in the midst of this, he prays a dangerous prayer. He prays a dangerous prayer when he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. Verse 26. Now, what does the Lord do in the midst of this? Um, It says that the Lord dislocates his hip. Verse 25, when the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, and God was just accommodating his strength, he wasn't trying to destroy Jacob, uh, because you think, how could Jacob out-wrestle the Lord? Well, the Lord was accommodating that strength to Jacob, because again, he wasn't there to destroy Jacob. It says that he, the angel of the Lord, touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. That must be some power for the Lord just to touch that hip socket and it to go out there. But that hip socket in wrestling, I, I, I don't know if any of you ever wrestled. I tried to play uh, different sports, wasn't really good at him except soccer, and that was mediocre at best because I could kick with my left leg, so that helped. But, um, but wrestling uh, was uh, uh, that, your, that hip was a pivot of strength when you're, when you're wrestling there, and by the way, I hated wrestling. I just hated it, but it was, I didn't want to go home and do chores, so I tried to you know, do whatever sports after school I could do. And so why is that significant? Jacob, again, he was one who always relied on his own strength, and God put his pressure point on that place of natural strength, and the Bible says that hip was knocked out of socket, in essence, Crippled. That means that from this point forward, that Jacob walked with a limp. And this limp, that his future steps were a continual reminder of his dependence upon divine grace. That limp was a continual reminder of this encounter with the living God. It wasn't, again, God trying to destroy Jacob but it was a transformational moment. Jacob, as I said, he struggled his whole life. He tried to outmaneuver not only Esau, remember Uncle Laban, who he, who he met his match with Uncle Laban, if you know that story. But what he was going to learn is that from this point forward, he may, he may have been able to wrestle and handle everybody else, but notice what it says. It says this man wrestled with Jacob. Who took the initiative? God says, boy, I'm going to deal with you once and for all. Now, it doesn't say that. Not even in the message does it say that. But this picture in my head is though Jacob's been able to run kind of on this. He's been able to run red lights. 
his whole life. But see, here's the point. God has a purpose for Jacob's life. God has a destiny for Jacob's life. God has a purpose and a destiny for your life. And there will reach a point when God says, you've gone far enough. Now, we do that with our children, right? If I have to come down there, it's not going to be pretty. Don't make me come upstairs. You know, we have all these threats, and then when the footsteps and you hear, it's kind of like, all right, time is up. We're going to deal with this. That's the picture I get that God says, Jacob, time's up. You have a destiny and a purpose. And the angel, the man, the Lord wrestled with Jacob. God was doing something to Jacob. God was dealing with Jacob. Jacob thought he might have been broken because he couldn't figure out how to handle Esau, but he didn't know anything about brokenness. Dare I say, when you're broken by the Lord? You see, God doesn't break us to destroy us. Amen? Amen. Thank you. Thank you. You get a free journal after church. Could the angel of the Lord crushed? I mean, my goodness, all he had to do was touch and knock a hip out of socket. Do you think the God of the universe who could speak the galaxies and earth and Anna, that he could, he was somehow met his match with little old squirmy Jacob? No. God was not out to crush him, but God was out to break him. Because there was a purpose. And until Jacob was broken, not because he got outmaneuvered by somebody smarter than him, but when he was broken by God and subdued, then he was able to fulfill the purposes of God. Let me give you four observations this morning on what is a dangerous prayer. Notice, first of all, dangerous prayer, a dangerous prayer marks our life. It marks, it's a mark our lives. He was touched. This is the ultimate touch by an angel, isn't it? There's something about the limp, the physical humility, the physical wound that Jacob had to deal with that was a result of this divine encounter with the angel of the Lord. Let me connect it to us this way. We may not be dealing with a physical limp of our brokenness, but we do have limps. We do have those areas in our life that are, have been crippled because of brokenness. But here's what I want you to hear this morning, that the place that we think was the place of greatest defeat, the broken place of our life, becomes the catalyst to our greatest transformation. You see, what the enemy meant to destroy, God intended for his purpose and his good. Now, I don't know what maybe your limp is. I know what mine are. And uh, perhaps those limps, those areas where we may have been crippled, it could be a result of self-inflicted sin and disobedience is oftentimes the case. It could be the sin and disobedience of someone else that has affected your life. And again, it's not, we're not saying this is a justification for sin and disobeying God that, well, everything's going to work out. 
But it is a place of saying that regardless of what happened, regardless of that which in my life to this day, I bear the consequence. I bear the limp. You with me? I bear that broken limp that, that is still there. Every day Jacob got up. He walked. That limp was with him. But when grandsons and great-grandchildren said, Pappy, why do you limp? I just think he got a smile on his face and said, oh, let me tell you about that day when I wrestled with God, when I met my match and God broke me, I was never the same. You see, my brokenness in my life changed my life, transformed me. Does that mean there's still not a limp there? Yeah, you bet. There's always a consequence to sin. There's always a consequence to sin. But instead of that being a badge of dishonor. It's a place of God's marvelous grace where our brokenness was used. And we truly can say that, as Romans 8.28 says, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. You see, a desperate life, Jacob, a desperate life in a defeated moment, what does he do? He calls out to God in a dangerous prayer. And when a person does that, a person's life will be marked, will be marked by God upon their life. The limp of God's breaking, not a place of shame, but a place of transformational grace where God subdued my will. You with me? Where God subdued my will. I'm hard-headed. And you are too. We're stubborn. We come into this world. My grandson, who, number eight, will be born. He, is, he will be born a sinner. He will have a stubborn nature that is bent against God. That's our nature we're born into. There's no age of accountability magic. We are born in sin. We are born in sin. That's the reality of Scripture, Okay? And so our wills are bent against God. That's how we're born. That's our nature of, of our existence. And God has to bring us to a place to subdue our will, to break us in order to give us life. Because you know what? I, I am thankful. Talking about salvation, I'm glad that God broke my self-will and saved me. Because guess what? Had he not done it, I wasn't looking for it because I liked my will. I liked my way. I liked my purpose, thought everything was great. Everything was wonderful. And even after that, I'm saved, I'm sanctified, I'm redeemed, all the words there. But guess what? Every day, God has to break the will of Tim, and I have to pray prayers, not my will, but thine be done. God is subduing and breaking my will every day. And so a dangerous prayer marks our lives. Notice, secondly, a dangerous prayer changes our identity. Look at verse 28. The Lord gave him a new name. He gave, said, your, verse 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob. What was his old name? Manipulator, deceiver, supplant, you know, heel care. I mean, that was his old identity, Right? But don't you love 2 Corinthians 5, 17? Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, 
He, she is a what? A new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. In Christ, we've been given a new name, a new identity, not our past, but a new identity in Christ. Israel was the name he was given. And the name Israel means he who struggles with God. He who struggles with God. Jacob was a struggler. But instead of now struggling to manipulate circumstances and people for himself, he's struggling with God. You know why? Because God can handle Jacob, just like God can handle you and me. But it's better to struggle with God. And what does it say? Verse uh, 28, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God, struggled with God and with men, but here's the good news, and have prevailed. That's grace, my friends, to struggle with God and to come out winning with God. That's grace. He was a struggler, and the nation of Israel was given her name. Do you realize that? That here's the place that the nation of Israel that later would be identified as as the name of God, her name, and it means a people who struggle with God. Is that not fitting for our Jewish brethren? Jacob struggled. He always wanted to dominate. He wanted to be one step ahead his whole life. He was a heel catcher. But now, and a little note in John MacArthur's uh, uh, study Bible says that now he's identified as God's fighter, one who struggles with God and is victorious. His identity changed. His name changed. You remember the Apostle Paul? Before he was known as the Apostle Paul, was known as what? Saul. And his own testimony in Galatians 1 and other places in Acts, that it says that he was, he tried to destroy the church. He tried to destroy God's people. He was hell-bent on a mission to destroy these Christians. But guess what? God, on that road to Damascus, subdued him, broke him, and later his name was changed because he wasn't the Saul who tried to destroy Christ and his people. He was given a new name, a new identity. You and I are given a new identity. We are new creations in Christ. So a dangerous prayer not only marks our lives, but a, new, but a dangerous prayer, God changes or will change our identity. Thirdly, a dangerous prayer will draw us closer to God. Look at verse 30. Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God, how? Face to face. Why does God bring the brokenness in our life? As I said, it's not to crush us. It's not to annihilate us. But it's to subdue us to a place where God can work in our life. You know, on Wednesdays, we'll begin a study in the book of Exodus on the life of Moses. And you can characterize Moses' life, 40, 40, 40. 120 is when he died. First 40 years was when he rose up and tried to take matters into his own hands and saw the Egyptians, you know, attack. You saw the movie, right? Prince of Egypt. So you know what I'm talking about. Um, (laughs) 
sadly, all our theology is from movies. But anyway, uh, but 40 years old, he thought he was somebody. Spent the next 40 years when he was 80 out on the backside of the desert working for his father-in-law, tending sheep, not the prince of Egypt. So he spent another 40 years thinking he was a nobody. Thought he was somebody, 40 years. Added another 40, thought he was a nobody. And then the rest of the 40, till he died at 120, he understood what God can do and work through with a nobody. You see, do you think, I don't know, this is a theory, can't, can't quote a verse, maybe back in the map so I can find it, but, but I have a thing that I think God could have easily worked with Moses a little sooner if he had just been a little more pliable, willing, whatever. But sometimes God will just wait you out. He'll just wait you out until you, you know, until you come to that place. I think Jacob, I mean, he was probably, I mean, he sent his family away. I mean, he was, he was going to face this crisis in his life, and now all his little scheming was going to come to a head in that moment. But God says, now you're exactly where I can do something with you. See, as long as we're full of self, as long as we're full of our schemes and ways, You know what? God doesn't have a lot of room. Do you remember what Jesus, the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, right? For theirs is the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. That's what it says, in case you look at me like, I'm not sure I believe that. The first beatitude is blessed are the poor in spirit. I'm just take my word for it, okay? And one one, uh, translation says, blessed are those who have declared bankruptcy on self. You see, the kingdom of God and the ethics of the kingdom begin when a person realizes that they are bankrupt of self. You can't follow through with the rest of the Beatitudes as long as you think, I'm all right, I'm doing all right, and I can handle my life. Jacob was bankrupt of self. The first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. Heard of that one before? You see, the idol, we don't, I, I, you know, we don't have little wooden idols and things like that. That's not our issue. But the idols of the heart, John Calvin says the heart is an idol factory. The idol of self-will, self-determination, that has to be subdued before God can use us, before God can do what He wills for our life. Some never move beyond knowing about God. Some of you may be here today, and you know about God, and you don't have any disagreements with what you know about God. But here's the, here's the difference is, you don't really know God. You know about God like you know about Abraham Lincoln and George Washington and John F. Kennedy. You know about, you know the facts. You're not quibbling with the facts. You don't have any, you don't have any argument with the Creator. You're, you're, you're fine. He, he's doing good. You don't have any complaints, right? But you don't know Him. Jesus came to reveal and make known God. And the only way you can know God is through Jesus Christ. You can't know this God apart from Jesus Christ. 
Jesus said that no one comes to the Father except through me. You want access to know the living God, you've got to come through Christ. Knowing God, we come to know God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus said in John 6.40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him shall have eternal life. A dangerous prayer at its very core is meant to draw us closer to God. That's why it's dangerous. Because you may find yourself in a couple weeks, we'll look at Isaiah 6, and that dangerous prayer. And you're going to realize that this God is a holy God. And some of the ways that we talk and think and act around this God don't really, don't really work when you're in the presence of a holy God. But God desires us to be in relationship. What is a dangerous prayer? It marks our lives. Change changes our identity, draws us closer to God, and last, it impacts others. Impact others. The Bible says in verse 32, it's interesting here. If you can find it, that would be great. I'm making her work, work today. Sorry. Therefore, verse 30, I said 30, yeah, 32, 32, if you can't, there you go, okay. Therefore, look at this, this is interesting. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, of course, of animal meat, because he, the angel, the God, touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh, now, what's interesting about that is there is this is this is this is not in the Bible as a prohibition. This is the only reference to it. There's no dietary prohibition in the Old Testament about this. Uh, there's nothing in the Mosaic dietary laws about this. You think, well, where did this? How did this come about? Well. In, it is mentioned uh, in the Jewish Talmud, which is a collection of the rabbinical teachings, oral traditions through the years, and it is a dietary prohibition that is found uh, later in the writings of Judaism. My point is, it's not saying it's unbiblical, it's just saying that there's no other reference in the dietary laws that prohibits this. And so what, what we see here is that which was retained in Jacob's body that as a perpetual reminder for generations to come, they refrained from eating the part of the, uh, whatever the animal was, the, uh, is it the uh, uh, psychiatric, uh, how do you say that? Sciatic, I knew, I, I knew that wasn't, sciatic muscle, the hip socket that is, was touched by the Lord. And so here was this continual memorial, this reminder for generations to come of this encounter of this dangerous prayer by one of the patriarchs, Jacob, where he met God in a transformational way. What's the point? Praying prayers... 
praying dangerous prayers that are transformational or dangerous, hear me, are not just about us, right? It's not just about us. We have a very individualistic, private type of Christianity in America. That's why church, to some of you, is just kind of an option. If it works out and you don't have tickets to Disneyland or the Bucks, we'll come to church. We don't have anything else to do. Because there's not, there's not an understanding of the gathering that's been lost. And so when we come together, it's not just about us, but when we pray dangerous transformational prayers, all, not only is it that they transform us, but also they impact others. To why and how is to see the transforming power of Christ working in our lives, and that when someone sees the transforming power of Christ working in and through our lives, that they see that and say, if God can do that for Nancy, if God can do that for Teresa, if God can do that for Robert, the Roberts, if God can do that for them, there must be hope for me. Maybe God can change my life. Because of how I see the demonstration and power of the living Christ working in and through me. You see, the Old Testament, the Bible says in Romans 15, 4, says that for whatever was written in former days, that's the Old Testament, was written for our instruction. Do you realize that? You realize that all this that went on with Jacob, we're reading it, and it's benefiting us. We're able to derive its principles, its counsel. It's benefiting us. It's instructing us. We don't believe like one well-known megachurch pastor. It says that we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Jesus says, it's in these scriptures that speak of me. In Luke 24, on that uh, road to Emmaus with those disciples that he came upon. He began showing them all those things concerning himself, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. What is that? That's called the Old Testament. We call it the Old Testament. What do you mean unhitch it as though that's old and we shouldn't have anything to do with the Old Testament? It's not relevant. It doesn't speak to the modern generation. That's craziness. We don't believe that. Nobody believes that. But whatever was written in former days, even their experiences were not meant just for themselves, but even the experience of Jacob was meant to impact others sitting here on January 6, 2019. That what we just listened to, what we just read as historical fact as truth would impact our lives. And it will impact your life if you dare to believe. David Jeremiah, on this encounter, made this statement. He said, after the encounter, Jacob limped on his hip, each step reminding him that he no longer operated in his own strength, but in God's strength. Listen to this. Jacob was changed for the better, from cunning to clinging, from resisting to resting, from the crafty one to the conquered one. Has God conquered you? Has he conquered you? Has he subdued you? He has for me, and guess what? He is conquering me. 
Amen.